there was such a stepping up of people trying to find a way to ensure an experience for their classmates, right? So not just in terms of the academic, but you know, we raised money to support students who lost their internships and you know had to re-recruit or were interested in supporting their time and energy and resources on like you know, a social impact internship instead of consulting. The student organizations came together to try and figure out how to be a valuable backbone to this community. There's so much of that that I just saw come together. I think that that was a huge takeaway around that service leadership thing is that like that element of it is something that no one else can take away from you. And you can manifest, you know, how you choose to give your time, energy, or whatever it is, that is something that you get to choose how to give and, and, and no one can really you know, take that from you. Welcome to season one, episode five of McDonough Talks. I'm your host, Mike Silverman, and today I am joined by Rohan Chamapant. Rohan graduated from UCLA, where he majored in international development. Prior to attending business school, he worked as an engagement manager, cultivating and developing high-impact partnerships with nonprofit professionals, leaders in philanthropy, and social change makers to strengthen and transform individual leaders and collective movements. Rohan has pursued a career in consulting while at MSB and will be joining EY Parthenon's M&A strategy team after graduation. Rohan, thanks for joining us. Mike, what a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So Rohan, you are a second year student about to graduate in a couple weeks. What's that feel like? Oh, it's a good question to start. Um, incredibly bittersweet, I think, is probably what you would hear from, from most people. There's uh, simultaneously the sense in the air of, you know, kind of this moment of celebration coming together, vaccinations have, you know, really started to take off. So I think people are starting to feel a little more comfortable and are back in the city. People are stoked about the Nats Park commencement. And at the same time, you know, it comes with this very tangible recognition that our time together is limited. And I think you know, you're, you're just starting to see that this thing is coming to an end. And uh, I don't want to, you know, we don't have to spend too much time on it. But obviously, the pandemic changed the course of how we experienced our MBA program and certainly our community. So I think there's there's just a little bit of that frenetic energy in the air right now, uh, which is both, you know, incredibly satisfying and, and just, a, just a touch sad. Yeah. And, and you brought up the pandemic. We won't harp on it. But I felt coming into my experience, I just felt for you guys because, you know, three quarters of your time was spent virtual almost. Do you think that you specifically and your classmates were able to make the most of a of a really crappy situation? Oh, yeah. You know, I think I'll just speak for me personally. And I noticed for myself what basically happened was in, in the early days of this pandemic, there was so much of the, the kind of bitterness, uh, so much of, you know, this sensation that something was taken from us. And I owe a huge debt of gratitude to many of my classmates who like over, you know, a couple months of conversation. I, I think there's a broader meta point that we were able to reach, which is that like not a lot of this stuff is in your control under the best of circumstances. And it really was, you know, I'd say around when 
our second year started, when it became clear this was what our reality was going to be, yeah, there was no more thinking like, oh, we're, we're going to be back on campus. There was a mental perspective shift, I think, that started to happen of like, the only thing that I can control is how I am choosing to experience um, this. So all of that, you know, the long way to say that, like, once I think I, I was able to internalize that for myself, once I you know, met classmates who were doing the same, of course, I love griping and uh, complaining as much as the next guy. It's incredibly satisfying. But eventually I found that it just was burning me out. And I, I was able to, to, I think, shift to something a little bit more meaning making in the midst of this. And yeah, I, I would say to answer your question, you know, still made a lot of really incredible friends great networks, had a couple great classes. And, you know, if that ain't the ball game, then I don't know what is. Absolutely. Yeah, that's super insightful. And I guess we'll get right into the thick of it sure. and, and kind of maybe reverse engineer this process a little bit. And I was telling you before we, we jumped on live here, how in awe I am of you and I find you to be inspirational. And I'll give you the genesis of that of that feeling was I got an email from you out of nowhere and I'm sure you sent it to a bunch of other folks in the first year group in like mid to late October, we were slogging through mod one coming up on midterms and career days and all that fun stuff. And you sent like the most thoughtful email I think I've ever read <laughs> in, like in my entire life, like out of nowhere from this stranger. And I was just like, oh my God, this is like one of the most amazing people I've ever come across. Like this solidified why I came to Georgetown. Mm. And I think I wrote back, like you've set the tone and, and really showed us what it is to be a second year and how to like set that example. Um, so one, I just want to thank you for that. Yeah. And, and two, I want to dive into where that thoughtfulness and kind of care and sincerity comes from because you know i printed off three emails for so that that, that was just the tip of the iceberg <laughs> the emails kept coming so this is something that you do and each one got successively more thoughtful and like super insightful so i wanted to ask you like where you developed that How, was that is that natural or does that mm. come from like an evolution yeah well first off you know mike let me start by saying yeah you, thank you so much for the kind words. It means a lot to hear that it landed for you in that particular moment. And I think so often I find myself wanting or needing, you know, some kind of support that the, the kind of like instructive moment for me is just like, whatever I feel like I'm in need of personally, I give it, I try and give it away as much as possible in the hope that, you know, there's some kind of reflective mirror out there and, you know, that'll, that'll come back to me. And secondly, just, you know, I, I think it, I've been where you're at. And I think that knowing and, and having that kind of, I know this is getting to be like such a cliche word at this point, but like that, that sense of empathy, you know, recognizing that an email that can take you five minutes to write can mean something so much to someone, you know, such that six months later, we're sitting here uh, talking about how that was impactful to you, like wh what an incredible win, uh, you know, for such little often effort in a, in, a, in a time where it's like you can really struggle. And and I think I've talked with and met and I'm friends with people who've been really struggling. 
And so I, th I think I, I, I try and find wherever I can, you know, little ways to alleviate that. Um, so thank you. And thank you. I, I forgot to, I wanted to say at the uh, top of the show as well, thanks for putting this podcast on, man. Uh, when we've been talking about this for a while, but really, really appreciate what you're doing here. And, um, uh, you know, I think cut from the same cloth. Thanks for that. And I was remiss in not mentioning in Rowan's bio that he's also a staff member on McDonough Talks as our researcher and segment producer, I guess we'll call you. So thanks for helping out. Really saved me for sure. So the follow-up to that previous question is empathy for me is something that hasn't come natural. And it's been something that I've had to work to develop and I'm still not perfect with it. So was that a bone that was just born in your body or was that from a family growing up background standpoint, something that was instilled, you know, as a youngster coming up? Yeah. Good, good question. I think I would say it's much more nurture than nature. I'm sure I have some like baseline level, you know, genetic predisposition, but I will say that this was a carefully cultivated component of my personality and the way that I choose to interact with people. I'd be remiss here if I didn't, uh, you know, mention most of my early career was spent in the reproductive health rights and justice space. Uh, that took me to, to uh, you know, work in India, or I was, you know, all across southern India, you know, working in cities as well as in villages with indigenous peoples, as well as in the Bay Area, where uh, I worked with activist groups and organizers. And the reason I bring that up is my entire early formative professional life in early 20s uh, was spent surrounded by women. I, I worked entirely with women, women who were incredibly smart, incredibly capable. And that environment was really instructive for, you know, a young cisgendered man to see what a different type of leadership looked like. And so I think often um, of my own mentors through those years um, as having, having helped me nurture that kind of vulnerable form of leadership that I think you were pointing at earlier. I hope in my own vulnerability and being able to demonstrate the things that I am struggling with, the hopes that I'm still experiencing in the midst of, of the, that darkness, um, that that's a little bridge that can open up between me and whoever I'm talking to. So while I appreciate the kind words, you know, I, I really do think that it's just, it is a kind of it's at the heart of what I would say is my core leadership strength. Gotcha. Yeah. And for me, I say awe-inspiring because I think that's like, in my mind of me realizing my full potential and full self, that's a, that is part of it. Hmm. And that's something I'm striving to get to. And so coming across yourself and that's clearly comfortable and demonstrating that, just gives me something to keep working towards and striving towards. And I see it as an example of what, what it looks like. So that's, that's where that sentiment comes from. Well, let me throw a question back to you, Mike. Well, yeah. uh, out of curiosity, what about that seems challenging or difficult or, or hard for you? Um, yeah, it, that's a good question. It's not that it's like challenging. It's, it's hard to, 
make that part of a natural reaction, mm. right? Like it's not something that's innate in me in terms of like, I would have never thought to do that. Like send an email to the whole first year group saying, hey, I'm with you. You guys have been through a lot. Just pause here for a moment, reflect on what you accomplished because it's so great and keep on going you know, the juice is worth the squeeze kind of thing. Like I I, I would just would have never thought to do that. And why would that not be in my thought process? Like, I don't know. Maybe if we're getting real psychotherapy here, maybe it's just like, I don't know. Maybe I'm just more selfish than I would like could be the answer. I I, I don't know. Well, I got some good news for you, Ben, Mike, if, if that's the case. You know, going back to a question that you'd asked at the beginning, like this is something that can be practiced. This is something that can be cultivated. And I think that's what is so refreshing. You know, it. let me stand here and tell you on this podcast, like I am an incredibly selfish person. I think the great gift and ability to start forgiving one another is recognizing that we all are and that we can use that selfishness in, in different ways. Uh, and we can be varying levels of honest about how selfish or not we are. But that idea of exactly what you're pointing at, man, it, you know, it is something that can be cultivated. And I'm lucky to have a couple incredible role models as well um, of people who are just shining examples of generosity, of compassion and thoughtfulness that I've benefited from. Um, so I'm glad to hear that, you know, this, this kind of uh, circular pattern repeats itself and uh, yeah. we we find you know we we find each other i've i've said this to a lot of uh, my friends who've probably heard this too many times and and are bored of hearing me say it now but one of my core beliefs in life is that we we all hold each other's water we all hold each other's emotional capacity and our ability to experience not just survival in this life but flourishing real meaningful flourishing is entirely codependent on your capacity to hold me uh, you know the the 100 200 people in our class their their capacity to hold us and i think that as i started to recognize that for myself there's a sense of responsibility that i think a really meaningful sense of responsibility that can come with that kind of humanist worldview not just to hold up the light of others and, and you know help them build better lives for themselves, but there's a call to help like fix yourself as well. And that selfishness is therefore you know inherently selfless. If what you're trying to do is figure out how you know you you can invest the time in yourself so that you can hold other people better. I, th- I don't know. I think that there's a kind of uh, intoxicating liberation that comes with that. Yeah, that's. I mean, the wisdom just flows out of you, oh. man. It, it, it's like you're like you're like a born teacher almost. Um, <laughs> I, I I I don't know. Maybe I just I, I haven't been. I want to hang out with uh, Rohan in a social setting and get a bunch of drinks and see what. Uh, social rohan's like yeah shout out to all those who've uh, who've seen that guy yeah definitely big fan of getting a lot of drinks and waxing poetic cool let's get some beers sometime yeah sounds great and so did this wisdom come from any particular like college experience or just over time uh, you're an avid 
poetry reader? Is that something that you've been able to take a lot from or something your parents passed down? You know, I just want to get into the background a little bit now. I'd be hesitant to call it wisdom, but I can tell you, you know, some of the origins of where my philosophy comes from. Uh, A a couple places that I would point to. First, really, you know, this part of why we came to Georgetown, right? I think like that global mindset and getting to spend so much of my time growing up. uh, I'm born, you know, in California, Orange County, uh, but really spent a lot of my time in India doing like internships and things like that before I worked there for a few years. Um, And I do think that there's something to that idea of like, when you don't have a single monoculture that you grow up in, I think it it just made me realize that, you know, our reality is a little bit more dependent on our circumstances than set in stone. I think that was an important lesson early on to just kind of open my perspective um, I will say that, as you mentioned, you know, poetry is a huge inspiration for me. The poem that really uh, uh, changed my life is called The Rubaiyat by Omar Khayyam. And it's a pretty quintessential book of poetry that, you know, I think really well describes Sufi philosophy, which is a form of um, mystic Islam. Um, and I think what I really took from that, there's a kind of playfulness uh, I, I think I'm, I'm curious, Mike, if, if you ever experienced this, like in your early youth, so much of my time, I think, was spent with some kind of existential angst, um, some kind of real, you know, dread about finality and mortality and the purpose of why you were here. And it all just felt so heavy. And I really struggled with that for a long, long time until I came across this poem. And, you know, I think uh, I'll send you a couple uh, verses from it, but there's a there's a pointing at the kind of lightness of being and how we, this, the very same things that I just said, the kind of, you know, the inconsequentiality of it, the, the kind of impermanence of everything. Um, but there was a pointing with a sense of laughter, a sense of uh, real just joy that was revolutionary for me at the time. Um, and then the last thing I'd really say is, I meditate, and I think that that like journey has been pretty instructive uh, over the last several years. Not for any you know major reason, other than I think it's good to get some quiet time with your own brain, just to start to see how your thoughts work and figure out if you can be a little bit more in control of your emotional capacity, and then just start to explore. Um, so I think some combination of those things would be kind of where I'd point at uh, of where my current philosophy comes from. Do you practice transcendental meditation or what? what's the practice for you? Yeah, so I um, mostly do uh, Vipassana, which is a form of uh, mindfulness meditation. It requires no subscription to any set of beliefs, no idolatry, and it's a good launching point, I think, for anyone looking to explore how their brain works. I got into meditation uh, via Sam Harris, um, who you may know. He's a neuroscientist and a sort of public intellectual figure, you know, uh, leaving all his other work aside, really just he started me on a path of really trying to understand spirituality without religion. Um, I, I reached a point where in my own religious journey, as someone who was young and of faith, 
that it was almost painfully impossible for me to make meaning from my religious background at, at a point. But I didn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I was unable to find anyone who was really able to guide me through a process of taking some of those attributes of you know what are what can often be traditionally associated with religious life contemplation community study reflection but put those in a way that were secular um, humanist and universal so I think you know that that's probably been about a seven or eight year journey for me now you're not religious anymore uh, no I wouldn't say I am now I uh, you know grew up definitely uh, believing and practicing a form of Hinduism, um, you know, both just my my family, you, know, you, you kind of uh, are, are raised in a particular culture and tradition. Uh, but I, I will say I did very much feel of faith at a time. And I think looking back, there was a little bit of wish thinking, I think that went on with it, which was just that this desire that I think a lot of us have to feel connected to something that is larger than what we are, something that could help make sense of this great mystery that that surrounds us and that we wake up with every morning and go to bed with each night, which is, you know, why are we here and, and what are we doing? And I think what I ultimately got to was, and this is just for me personally, I don't, and, you know, I think there are people who get to the same conclusion and retain their faith. I don't mean to say that shedding faith is the only way to get there. Um, but I think that what I soon discovered was I was looking for a more complicated answer than the one that was on hand and readily available, which was to me that all we have is one another. All we have is this community of brothers and sisters and, and human beings. And, and that, as I mentioned before, you know, that, that once that clicked for me, that there's, you know, the rest of it's just maybe like a, cold and unfeeling rock hurtling through space, but we've got one another that gave me the sense of like, isn't that worth living for? Isn't that enough? Isn't that compelling enough of a challenge? And can we not animate our lives? I should say, can I not animate my life around this central mission and purpose, which um, I think I've talked to you about before, you know, my central purpose in life is to surround people with love. And I think once that became crystal clear for me, uh, I was able to, I'd say, shed what for me felt like elements of religiosity that were no longer uh, creating meaning for me, but retain, I think, some of the things that a lot of my atheist and secular friends are a little bit more squeamish about, you know, to, just the sense of wonder and, you know, excitement and, and an ability to really conversate with uh with people of faith. I think those are some of my favorite conversations. In your quest to, you know, surround yourself and everyone else around mm. you with love, do you find yourself judging people still? Could you say more about what you mean by judging people? For me and my background coming from sports as a talent evaluator, I find myself evaluating things on that baseball specific scale, mm -hmm. whether it's food, music, a uh, restaurant, someone that crossed paths with as didn't really bring much value to my life or mm -hmm. what have you. So in that sense, do you find yourself free of that thought process? No, no like, not at all, man. Okay. I wish, um, actually, I don't know if I wish, <laughs> um, but no to, you know, again, and this is where, 
we can all be varying degrees of, of honest with ourselves, but you know, it, I'm certainly not above it. And, and I look back on a lot of experiences in the MBA program and in, in my life itself, where I wish I could go back and, you know, change the kind of transactional nature of a relationship that I tried to create or where I just feel like I was so short-sighted about someone who maybe annoyed me or irked me um, and was almost every single time, you know, proven definitively wrong. You know, I think speaking just to the MBA program itself for a second, this environment that we're in is so unique and so perfectly conditions us for that kind of judging, right? Like that kind of, all we have here is our social capital. I mean, yes, there are, there's a few other, you know, really important things. I'm being simplistic for a moment, but really a big part of, I think, what we learn in this program is how do you cultivate, how do you create, how do you protect, and how do you share your social capital? And that often comes with both, you know, quick gut level decisions about people, that you might feel you know, uncomfortable with or that, that don't feel like they're worth your time or, or vice versa. And on the flip side, right, how many times have you and I sat wondering if others are making those same you know, kinds of, of judgments about us? Um, the only thing that I can take solace in is that most of the time I have been proven absolutely wrong in my own value judgments. And that's helping teach me to slow down a little bit, be a little bit more open and spacious uh, with people, be a little bit more open and spacious with myself, kind of going back to what you were saying at the beginning. You know, I think a lot of this is not just about, you know, what what we create for others. It's a lot about what we let others create for ourselves too. Uh, and there's a, there's a two-way street between those things. So my own ability to, you know, close people off, it, it in some way closes off something in me. And I think I've been reflecting on that a little bit more very imperfectly, but still working on it. And now I want to kind of touch on something you brought up a little bit ago about growing up Hindu, mm. and you grew up in Southern California. Yeah. I mean, I've been to California a bunch. Was that experience hard in any way in terms of being ostracized or discriminated against in what I imagine is a very white environment? Yeah, good question. You know, I get this. I get asked this a couple of times. I think I have a few things that I want to say here. And I, I, I can only speak from my own perspective here. I think I definitely grew up in a majority, uh, you know, white space from you know, like, if, if you ever seen like The Real Housewives of OC, and that's, that was filmed like right next to where I went to school, the Laguna Beach, that whole kind of vibe. I grew up not ever really feeling like I was on the outside of something. Um, I think that there was, you know, largely a sense of, if not, you know, celebration, at least inclusivity and just tolerance, which was fantastic. I didn't feel like I had a critical theory or a language around race and religious identity. But looking back, retrospectively, you know, I'm much more able now with a more sophisticated knowledge and understanding to identify you know, some places in my life where there were elements of discrimination or I was always on the outside um, of something. And I wanna just pause there to say that like that is, speaking again, just for me, not for any other Indian or any other person of color, that is an 
a part of the privilege that I had growing up was that that was never forced on me, that I could go through 18 years of my life not feeling like I was on the outside of something. I know that there are a lot of people in this country for whom that is not an option that they get. That is a reality that is forced on you know, children who are still forming their identities and forming their sense of where they belong. Um, so in that way, you know, I can't sit here and pretend like I have you know, some um, larger story of discrimination and displacement to share with you. But I do want to say that even at the time, I think so much of growing up in a, in a space like that, it had less to do with other people and it had more to do with me. I was always curious about this kind of question of like, what is home for me? What is it that my family left to come here and be on the outside of something? You know, very model minority story of you know, family left to um, make sure that their kids got a better education, better job prospects. But I was really, really curious about like, what did they leave? And, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier, that, that started for me when I was 15, uh, a real fascination and exploration of India. It started with me reading Mahatma Gandhi's autobiography, My Experiments in Truth. And then kind of over the next, I'd say almost eight years, you know, trying to spend every summer there, eventually moving, living um, and working there afterwards. But my wife actually had uh, uh, something that I think I was complaining to her when I was much, much younger, like early 20s or something. Just, you know how you are. You, nobody's like ever super, super fond of like their high school or, or things like that. So I used to always kind of rag on Orange County as this place that I always thought was like, it was spiritually vapid and the people were kind of like uh, ostentatious. And she said to me, I remember very distinctly, you're shaped as much by the things that you were you know, actively trying to cultivate as what you're not. So she invited me to find a moment of gratitude um, for this place that in my early 20s, I was feeling despondent about and, you know, over it. And I was looking for something. And her point was like, why do you think you're looking for that? And, and how much richer is your own personal life for that? And, you know, looking back 10 years from then, uh, 100%, she was right. And, and Orange County is a fantastic place. There's incredible people out there. It was my own uh, short-sightedness, closed-mindedness that I think was uh, animating that thought process. That's some excellent growth that your wife helped facilitate right there. Absolutely. That's the definition of a better half. I love <laughs> it. Um, and then, so yeah, that's interesting. I was going to ask a question about wanting to, you know, you, you searching for what your family, you know, left and why in your time in India, what did you find? Did you find an answer to that? Mm, good question. Yeah, I think I did. You know, I think there's two ways to answer this question. One is a, you know, some stuff that's a little more concrete and one's a little bit more abstract. So I'll start with the concrete first. I think what I found was, you know, just it concretely was a sense of family, of community. I, I, I finally understood, you know, what it felt like to stand in a place where I knew that my family had history, right? That it wasn't just 25 years or something that, that we'd been in a place, but we could kind of back six generations or something. And I think I found 
a different definition or, or a different perspective, I should say, a different experience of diversity in India than, than our American, what do we call it here, the melting pot idea. The big thing for me was the quality of friendship. The experience of friendship in India was so different than what it was here. In so many ways, it's such a big communal, you know, living environment. You're kind of always surrounded by people in a way that, you know, a lot of my time here in the U.S. was either, you know, small nuclear family or, you know, time alone. In India, there was just, I, I, I don't think I ever had a minute to myself ever. And I don't think I ever wanted a minute to myself ever in the way that I, I do now when I'm here. Uh, so that really I like helped me formulate some ideas around the loneliness of the American experience relative to what I what I had growing up in India. So I think that those are some of the elements concretely. But abstractly, man, you know, there's there's no way that I can describe it. Like when I was there, I felt completely at home. You know, it's the sound of the rain, it's the color of the clay, it's the smell of the food, it's you know, the the humdrum noise of the traffic and the the languages it in so many ways just felt like a place that i'd always lived in and a place that i'd always called home um, every time i went there that part of it was a little bit more abstract and, and when i tried to talk to my father uh, about it you know he it's surprising despite him having been here i think a little bit Oh, probably 35, 37 years now or something like that. Um, he knows exactly what I'm talking about. And you know, it's for both of us, this thing that is hard to articulate, but incredibly easy to experience. So I think that's something that's just in the blood. And when I, when I talk to him about it, you know, he, he gets it. And, and that was, I guess, what I was always searching for. Now, it, a couple questions, sure. two parts. It'll probably take you in two different directions. One is, so you just described like, things that sound awesome to me, like really, really fun and something I would want to be around. Does it amaze you at all? Mm. Like that people come to America seeking something different or better than what you kind of just described. Mm. And then second to that is you talk about your dad. I did some internet stalking and research and i found a talk you gave about your dad and <laughs> oh, wow is, and is and is he has he been like the most influential person for you throughout your life wow you did your research huh let's start with the second question first yeah i mean certainly i think my dad has been someone for whom i have incredibly rich complex feelings um and thoughts about it's Simultaneously, you know, so effortless and easy to have that kind of source of love and person that you can give love to, as I'm sure anyone here, you know, with family knows that, that it's also incredibly complicated at times. Um, but I think the real thing that I see with my father, I'd say is one, just like often, you know, it's it, it, it's so easy for me to see like where a lot of my own thought patterns and instincts come from because I just see it like, oh man, I'm, I'm just like this guy that I've been fighting for 25 years of, you know, my early life to be nothing like. It's like, bam, you know, you, you, you caught by the same trap that you tried to, uh, that you tried to avoid for yourself 
so I think that, that is always an interesting experience for me. Uh, you know, I'm sure that's not universal for for everyone, but for those of you who identify in that way with your parents, I think it's it's a fun process of discovering not just you know this thing about this incredible giant that's walked the earth for 30 years longer than you have that's made uh, all the same mistakes that you have and that has shared in you know a lot of the same joys uh, that you have but has has just like kind of always got your back around the periphery you know it's always ready to let me like run full speed into a brick wall and then be like oh yeah like I knew that was going to happen. You're okay. Don't worry. So yes, my father, very, very big, very influential. We both love scotch. I don't know if you'll ever hear this, but shout out dad. Um, And then I'm sorry. Oh, yes. So like, why do people want to, yes, they want to create a better life for their children, but why don't they see that as a possibility where they come from? And do you wish that you Mm. had the opportunity to grow up in the things that you described as sound as so awesome sounding. Whew. That's a hard one. You know, I can't pretend to say that I understand what 1970s or 1980s India was like to be young um, and ambitious. And, uh, you know, you and I are sitting here at an MBA program for much the same reason. You know, we hope to have some kind of explosive opportunity, uh, not just for ourselves, but for those who come after us. I can't pretend to say that I know enough about what those opportunities looked like for my dad and mom, you know, in India at that time. I have to believe that the case was so compelling, so open and shut for them to walk away from all of that. I think human beings are capable of making decisions that are logically sound, uh, perhaps emotionally you know, mistaken, not necessarily true for everyone. But I do think that so much of what my family's roots were at that time, you know, a lower class family coming into, um, I think, more of a middle class stature was around the socioeconomical aspects of success as opposed to, let's say, the cultural or the experiential parts of it. And so I think that uh, that drove not just my own family, but, you know, a, a lot of Indian families at the time to make decisions to come here. And, and I have to believe that that, you know, that just that case was so open and shut for them at the time that they were ready to walk away. Because you talk to all these guys, like you talk to my dad you know, it's been 35 years, they'll still talk to you till he's blue in the face about, you know, riding motorcycles and, uh, you know, drinking cheap whiskey in India with like, you know, him and his six cousins. And you're like, okay, you had to sacrifice all that. And now we're not even talking, you know, I think when you put it in the perspective of refugee families and real, you know, let's say economic immigrants who are under much more duress and are making those, those same decisions Without a lot of the same guarantees, I think that just is a whole other conversation that, that I can't even begin to imagine. Um, but for my father and for my mother and you know my my uncles and aunts, like I just have to believe that this was worth it. Did they come here together, or did your parents? I think my leave they, everything behind. My dad came here first. He was not married at the time. I think he he'd come here to go to college and then uh, went back to India, got married, 
came back here to to work and i think my mom was you know six months or so after him gotcha but like what about his brothers and sisters they all stayed back in india uh no one of his older sister is still back there and his younger brother has moved here as well and he lives in texas and he's actually uh he himself is an mba uh was like an electrical engineer i think i want to say electrical engineer computer engineer sorry if you're listening to this and he was the big reason for why I chose um, to pursue an MBA. He was an HBS grad and has been just a, a huge role model and mentor for me in my life. Um, it was a, was a big part of, of how I intellectually, I think, got here. Excellent. You, you know, you can tell just by listening to this, you're a pretty brilliant guy. <laughs> I'm sure you had um, the pick of whatever school you wanted to go to. How, how did you settle on McDonough mm. and Georgetown? You know, well, first off, I did not have the pick of, of school I, I wanted to it. go to. That, <laughs> surprising um, as that might be, it's, it's not surprising to me at all. You know, I think, uh, how do I say this? I did not fully appreciate the academic opportunity that I had in my undergrad experience. I did fine, but I didn't do well. And I was, I think, so much more focused on a kind of the kind of self-exploration sides that come with a lot of, you know, undergrad experiences, really learning who I was, you know, trying to figure out who I was between this American identity and Indian identity. I'll, I'll be, you know, transparent with you that class was not my um, number one focus. But yeah, I didn't, didn't necessarily, I had a couple options, but I, I'll tell you, you know, what really spoke to me about McDonough for me, it was certainly one of my top choices from the minute I got the good opportunity to come and interview here in person. When I got the chance, I met, and I can't remember the name now of, of the second year who interviewed me, but you know, I'd had so many, uh, I've done so many of these interviews that felt so kind of uh, stiff. And um, I myself was like, if I, if I look, if you look back at my uh, Georgetown you know, you have to send like a video in with the app. The video tape, yeah. I hate mine. It's so stiff and it's so <laughs> boring. And I just felt like I, you know, I had a huge imposter syndrome coming into this thing, man. Like I'm, I'm a uh, kind of like heart forward softy who worked in the social impact space for years and years and years. And I thought that I just had to like put on a, you know, suit and tie, um, you know, don the corporate space and just shut up about who I was for two years. And I think that that was probably the biggest takeaway from my interview process with uh, McDonough, where I'll tell you the first 10 minutes, I thought I was gonna bomb. I was so nervous. And this guy, uh, one of the student ambassadors, I think who do, the, who do the interviews, 10 minutes in, he could tell I was nervous. And he was, he's like, hey man, look at me, take a deep breath. You're doing fine. There's nothing super serious about this. We're just here to talk, get to know a little bit more about you and what motivates you. And so I like took a couple breaths. And then at the bottom of my um, resume, I had that um, I, uh, I like poetry. So it was like, tell me a little bit about poetry. Like, why is that meaningful to you? And then we just ended up having like a 15 minute conversation about, uh, you know, sort of the role of poetry in my life. And I walked out of that interview thinking that I didn't get it. But remembering that feeling of just how many of these interviews do you do where you just steamroll past the emotional experience of whatever 
someone is, is actually going through. How great was it? How inspiring was it that this guy treated me like a human being, nervous little prospective student that I was, took a breath, took a beat, told me to relax, and you know, spoke to me about something that I was comfortable speaking to first before bringing the conversation back. And I was like, that, to, to the same, you know, to credit to what you were saying earlier in, the, in our conversation, that was such a role modeling of, you know, the kind of business school I wanted to be at, the kind of business students I wanted to be surrounded by. And I couldn't be happier, man. You know, all that stuff I was saying before, the biggest myth of business school for me was that, you know, you, you come in here to, to find a job, of course, like you do. And it's a critical and essential part of the training and the skill sets that you build here. But I don't know why we can't say that, like, you know, the real reason that we come here is to search and explore meaning and cultivate purpose in our life. And I am so lucky and so blessed to have been able to do that for the last two years with people whom I never could have anticipated feeling this level of connection with. You know, not, not only are they going to be such great resources for me and, and me for them and in our professional networks, but what a gift it's been for the last two years to learn from some of the best and the brightest about who I am and what my values are and what's important to me. That's just been such a tremendous gift. Excellent. That's really, really nice to hear and fits into the whole Cure Personalis motto here, which we all now know is a big part of the program. And it's not just lip service. You know, people try to live up to that and incorporate that throughout the program. You know, I'll, so, say, I'll say one thing on that. Yeah. I, I've never quite resonated with Cura Personalis as much as men and women in service of others. I think that feels a little bit more true to my experience and my experience of our student community. It's so, like so definitionally service leadership oriented. Of course, you know, I'm not taking, not trying to rag on Cura Personalis or anything like that. I love that too. <laughs> But so much of what I experienced, you know, when we got into this pandemic, obviously before that, but when we got into this pandemic, there was such a, there was such a stepping up of people trying to find a way to ensure an experience for their classmates, right? So not just in terms of the academic, but, you know, we raised money to support students who lost their internships and, you know, had to re-recruit or were interested in supporting their time and energy and resources on like, you know, a social impact internship instead of consulting. The, the student organizations came together to try and figure out how to be a valuable backbone to this community. There's so much of that that I just saw come together that I think the real thing that I'm going to be taking away from my experience long-term, and, 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 and one more thing on that is just how very different service leadership looks for people, you know, it can manifest in so many ways that, you know, big and small, there's no need to compare yourself to anybody else. So much of our MBA program is this like horrible circus show of, you know, just feeling bombarded by how ineffective and inferior you are compared to your classmates in school, in public speaking, in recruitment. This thing can just be a nightmare freak show of self-flagellation uh, as, as you try to both make friends with these people who are infinitely smarter than you and like much more, much harder working and much more competent and 
Um, I think that that was a huge takeaway uh, around that service leadership thing is that like that element of it is something that no one else can take away from you. And you can manifest, you know, how you choose to give your time, energy, support, whatever it is, that is something that you get to choose how to give and, and, and no one can really, you know, take that from you. Yeah. That's really good advice and perspective. As you're about to graduate, can you share any tips for the current first years, anything you can think of for how to navigate year two? Oh yeah. All right. There's a couple. So I'll start with what I think is like the most obvious. And I've been trying to tell people this already. So uh, I apologize if some of this is uh, redundant. I think second year is just as hard <laughs> as first year. Um, I was really, uh, I just want people's like expectations to be set appropriately. I think a lot of our second years tried to tell us that how like, uh, you know, second year is like way chiller and you don't have to do as much. And like, that's kind of true. Um, but I think there's different kinds of pressures, particularly if you're still recruiting. The type of challenge changes from one of like academic, you know, sort of more strictly academic in that first semester, it takes up, you know, 80%, 90% of your time to, again, this idea of service leadership. A lot of you listening to this right now, you know, you're on SGA, you're, uh, you know, leadership at, at the student organizational level, you're doing incredible things inside and outside of the program. Uh, I think that starts to take up a lot more of your time. So it still is challenging. The challenge just looks different. Like, don't think that just because your one's done, you're in the clear. Um, the second piece of advice that I always give is like, give more than you take. This program, as we've talked about before, there's so much about how our social capital is deployed and how our time and our resources are used. I can only say from my own experience and from like the people who I see as like incredibly successful role models around me, the one thing that they seem to all have in common is this almost infinite capacity to give to other students who are looking for you know a contact, a, a networking opportunity, uh, um, someone's trying to start a business, someone needs advice. You know, the people who just like get on the phone, give them that like 10 minutes that they need and I think you'll be okay. And then the last thing uh, I'll say, which is I think much more at a personal and experiential level, this thing goes fast. I'm sitting here talking to you, Mike, with, uh, I don't know, something like two or three weeks until commencement. It felt like yesterday that this whole thing started. Uh, you know this, uh, having gone through your first year, what must feel like a, a blip of time retrospectively. Cherish it. And it's a real, it's an active struggle to take and find the time to cherish things in this program because there's just so much constantly flying at you. Whatever you can do to carve and create that space for yourself in your daily life, in your weekly life, your habits of reflection, really find whatever it is the, and the people around you who will help you, you know, just appreciate this gift for, for what it is. All we got is each other, man. And like, you know, give that love out as much as you get it and you know, enjoy the, the second year. It's, it's, it's a blast. I had a, I had a fantastic time. I'd do it again in a heartbeat. <laughs> well, you guys heard it here first from our wise sage, Rohan. You're too kind. Um, that's what uh, we should focus on next year. Rohan, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for being here with us today and sharing. We talked about perspective and just guidance on how to, you know, keep evolving and lead this place better than when we all 
found it. So thanks for sharing your thoughts and perspectives. Thanks, Mike. All my love to you and uh, to all your listeners. Um, I hope that this finds you exactly where you need to be when you're listening. Excellent. Well, thanks again, Rohan, and we will catch you next time here on McDonough Talks. See you guys. Bye.